It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. We're at a really unique moment in the history of humanity and the way that the internet allows us to coordinate in new ways and just generally reimagine how we live and design our built environment is just starting. We will be able to increasingly meet people online and get together in person for a duration of our choosing. And given this just sort of extreme flexibility there and the extremely high number of coordination options that are supported by a number of real-world technical innovations and renewable energy and satellite internet and, and other and like modular housing. We're just going to see so many cool experiments over the next 50 years. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is June the 18th in 2023, and my guest is Jackson Steger. Is Steger, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's right. And Germany, German could be Steger. That's yeah, probably I, not it. I used to live in Austria and got a lot of Steger. Sounds a bit scary to, to non-German speakers. Honestly, Steger is probably closer to correct, but I was born in Missouri and I, I think over time we've started just calling it Steger. Perfect. Welcome, Jackson Steger. <laughs> so Jackson is the host of the fantastic Campfire podcast by Cabin. Cabin is a co-living network city that we featured on episode 48 of this podcast. Jackson is writing and podcasting about co-living networks, startup cities, new neighborhood development, network states, and other new models for living. So Jackson, great to have you here. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm happy to be here. So what is co-living and what role does co-living play in your life? Wow. Great question to start us off. I'll answer the second part first, which like what role has co-living played in my life? I... I'm 27 now. I have tried a lot of different ways of living with roommates, living with friends, living with people I admire. And I would distinguish co-living from roommates in that there is perhaps more of a clear intention when you are co-living with a group. And I started really like beyond college dorms, which I think is a version of co-living. The first exposure I had to co-living and the 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 way that I interact with it most most days right now was in the heart of COVID. A few of my friends organized a house in San Diego for 35 people where we all flew in from different parts of the country. This was before there was a, a vaccine widely available for coronavirus. And we created this 
bubble for us 35, where we had all of our groceries delivered. We weren't allowed to go to any other indoor place or we would sort of violate this trust between the group. And we called it the co-creation castle. So all 35 of us were there because we had some desire to co-create, to yes and with the people that we lived with and to build cool things and to support each other in different creative endeavors. And that was like an amazing month for me. It was it was four of the best weeks of my life, especially after the last year had been a very lonely existence for for everyone involved and to come to come together with like-minded people, to be surrounded by people that you admired and to be inspired by them every day was an incredible warm experience. And I made so many close friends. So that's like what really got me into co-living. And then I've just through Cabin and through other outlets have tried to organize and foster more intentional living groups because having like a core intention, again, that that first one was a, a place where we could all co-create, but having other intentions focused on adventure or on fitness or other things that we've done has been an incredibly exciting way to live with friends and to meet people and to grow community. When I think of co-living, what I think of is it's just non-traditional ways of living, right? So no, people, you're living together with others when you have like a family or when you have like a roommate or in a dorm. So it's also a form of co-living, but then there are ways to live together with multiple people or multiple families in the same place or sort of not in just the traditional minimum lot size um, zoned household, right? So how would you, what, what else is out there? What are the different models? Sure. Well, in a world where loneliness is, I'd argue, a growing epidemic, co-living, you're right, offers a solution by connecting people in spaces designed for community and for personal growth. I think the first yeah, would be like subscription co-living. So this is a model that you see Selena employ, that you see Outsite or Wi-Fi Tribe or Remote Year uh, all employ to some extent. And, and now Cabin 2 with the, the membership offering that we have is, is a version of subscription co-living. This is where you pay some kind of rent to an organization and they help with all the logistics involved in setting up the housing or in developing programming like maybe it's nightly yoga maybe it's some excursion but they handle all of those logistics for you so that you and you being like a digital nomad or like target remote worker can show up and just sort of like run with it and go and so so co-living in that sense is being very much productized and and grown and scaled as more and more people experiment with different ways to live and and i, I think also like the moment we're in now in 2023, right, is is unique in the history of humanity in that for hundreds of years, thousands of years, where you worked has been largely in one place. And so people have been tied to live in one place. But this intersection, this collision, be it between digital, the rise of like remote work, of satellite internet, of renewable energy all collide in this way that allow us to reimagine how we live and, and be in different places for different amounts of time, it, it fueling the rise of what I call seasonal living too, beyond just like 
a point-to-point digital nomad uh, traditional way of, of living. So given that moment that we are in history, like these productized co-living offerings are becoming available, but then there's also like the co-living that one can organize on their own with their friends, which is what I've done a lot of as well. For example, we uh, also right after that co-living month uh, in the heart of the pandemic, we then took a group of 13 to Hawaii for a month. And uh, there were a bunch of hurdles, again, imposed by coronavirus there. But that's like a self-organized way where you, you take a flag and you plant the flag and say, hey, I'm Jackson. I'm going to this Spanish villa for 10 weeks. And this is a link to the Airbnb. And this is how much it's going to cost. And this is sort of the intention. Maybe the intention is you want to all get really fit for a marathon and you're going to run together every morning. Or maybe the intention is we're going to do like an AI hacker house. And the only people who can come to this trip are folks building different like AI projects. There's so many different ways that you can choose how to structure that co-living environment. I think the most important thing is that you have some level of governing community intention because that governing community attention is going to attract the right community of individuals who share that common interest or goal. So I'll give you like just like five other examples. You could have a space for musicians to collaborate daily. You could have a place for like nutritious, nutrition conscious roommates to design their environment to best support like a diet. You could have a pet owner community, like a hotel for dogs type deal. You could have a hub for like spiritual seekers and practitioners. The list goes on and on. And then Cabin is is building a network for creators who love living in nature, remote remote workers who love just living with nature out the front door. Yeah, I have a couple of friends or friend groups that have been thinking or are thinking about starting to co-live together, together with a couple of other friends from the same group. Often they want to go a bit more outside of the big cities or something like that. Even like older generations, families, my parents, they're thinking about that with some of their friends, which kind of speaks to what you're saying, the loneliness epidemic and people sort of having the urge or the urge to live together with people they admire and they want to be with instead of sort of being stuck in one household. What practical advice would you give to people that want to start to co-live with some of their friends that don't want like a productized offer from someone else? Yeah, the first thing I would recommend to them is to check out this blog called Super Nuclear uh, that's written by my my friend and mentor, Phil Levin. I should also add a, a third category of co-living that, that I should have mentioned earlier is like a non-nomadic version of this where you have like a, a, a permanent neighborhood or community with where you, you reside on a more long-term basis, uh, which is what he does. And there are plenty of resources available on super nuclear related to how to co-buy and how to uh, like just generally set up the co-living community. I've written about this a little bit. Uh, I have this framework that I think is helpful called the the pyramid of co-living needs. So almost imagining like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs for designing a co-living environment. And the way I would communicate that framework is by first imagining, I mentioned that governing community intention, that's at the top of the pyramid, but a good co-living is designed 
from the ground up and the top down at the same time. So while the top of the pyramid is having that uniting intention, the bottom of the pyramid is like really have good basic needs in place. So don't cheapen the essentials of what you put in your co-living environment. Like for residents, a co-living environment is is their home. And so you, you need to have great, comfortable living experiences, simple stuff like beds, sheets, Wi-Fi, uh, workspaces should be top of the line. We spend all of most of our days sleeping and working. And so you have to like not be cheap on those things. So splurge on the, the fast Wi-Fi speeds, buy some standing desks. And then the other thing, just when it comes to like basic needs is enable high degrees of privacy. Uh, I, I think some people assume that introverts hate co-living, but I've actually seen a lot of introverts love co-living. As long as they have spaces to go and return to when they need to recharge, I, I, co-living is like a highly stimulating social environment. So you need to design almost this, this, we call it like a caves and caverns concept where you have like these caves that are like for individuals, but then these like common caverns that like other folks can, can come into. And so enable that high degree of privacy and, and then beyond that design for serendipity. So you can't hope for connection between residents as much as you can engineer it. And I've seen places do like wishy-washy resident happy hours once a month. And I don't think that those create the same connections uh, that, that fuel supportive and caring environments as like a organically designed built environment would. That's where the, the caves and commons piece comes in. And then uh, there's all sorts of other things you can do when it comes to amenities. So if we were to take that pyramid, if that base layer is basic needs, the next layer up might be amenities. Amenities are, are traditionally included in these apartment marketing websites or on hotel Instagram pages, but are actually rarely used because like those places don't engineer for serendipity, like I, I mentioned. And in the context of co-living, I think there are a few amenities that if you place them sort of in common areas where people have to go past them and they, they sort of see people using them and they're not like stored away on a roof, um, there's definitely a few amenities that, that really help. So large kitchens for, for large groups, you want two dishwashing machines at least, I think, because ideally maybe you're you're cooking dinner every night as a group or you have maybe a chef if you have enough people to, to afford one um, so there's a large kitchen uh, a sauna is something that very typically folks love um, it, if you've never tried it like maybe they seem silly but saunas have tons of health benefits they lead to increased metabolism increased weight loss uh, improved muscle recovery all these things and then other stuff, uh, a yoga studio or, or a gym, a hot tub, a cold plunge, maybe a creator space like the one I'm in right now, uh, having like just a, a spot set up where folks can make music or, or podcast. And then maybe you want a movie theater or like a TV seating place, but I don't think put the TV in, in, uh, in like every living room because TVs can like suck the life out of, out of a place if everyone's just like watching co-living. So, yeah, to reiterate, you have the top of the pyramid, which is like this governing co-living intention. Base of the pyramid are all like your basic needs. Then you have amenities. 
And then sort of between the amenities and the top of the pyramid is like community norms, but uh, maybe I'll give you a chance to hop, hop in. I don't know if I'm going too deep into some of this stuff. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, so like perks, like amenities can only get you so far. The, in my experience, the true magic of co-living comes from having cohesive communities. And in order to have those cohesive communities, it's imperative that you have principles or norms that a community commits to and upholds and like every resident agrees to following to follow them. And there's no, I'm not going to like prescribe norms for co-living communities. I, I don't think there's like one size fits all, but there's a few things that I've seen work well across different environments. And I'll share maybe a few of those. So I mentioned like a big kitchen and one of the best parts of co-living is if, if you have like a nightly or maybe twice a week team dinner, group dinner option. And if, if you're like a big enough community and you have like more affluent guests, maybe, and you're maybe more permanent, you could probably afford a, a private chef if you wanted to do that. Uh, but I think what is maybe more, definitely more affordable and more authentic is to have chefs rotate. So in this house of 35, each person made dinner like once for a month and they, everyone got to sort of go all out on their night to make like the meal of their country or the meal that like their mom made when they were kids. And they get to share that experience with all of their roommates. And, you know, it's a big operation and they might ask a few other people to help with the cooking, but you only do it a few times a month. And then the chefs rotate. So chefs rotating and like co-creating, bringing folks in, that's like a really cost effective. You're going to save a ton of money because you're cooking for 35 people. Uh, but B, like everyone knows that they can count on a warm meal with their friends at the end of each day. And that's a really special experience. Chefs should rotate is like a great norm. Chefs should also never clean. Like if you're going to go through this big cooking operation, you should not be the one who has to, has to clean up that night. A few other things are really good. Maybe utilize like a brag channel. So as a society, we make this mistake of stigmatizing brown, of stigmatizing bragging. And within co-living, if you create a culture of bragging, when you complete chores, it enables two things. So I do this with my roommates here as well. When you brag, you get props for like doing the thing that you did. Your work doesn't go unnoticed. A lot of times I've seen uh, I have this great friend. She'd like do a few things in the kitchen to make it a little bit cleaner or like she'd clean up this space and she would do this quietly and and no one would notice. And I think that, you know, can build resentment in someone, not in her, but like, I, I think that could happen. And so when you say, hey, like I did this, A, people know and like, they'll thank you. But also when everyone's like sharing all their brags, people see chores being done at a higher rate and feel compelled to also contribute to the common good. So utilize a brag channel. Um, and then there's this thing we talk about a lot in Cabin that we, we've stolen from our friends at Radish called duocracy. So du duocracy is this idea of like, if there's any small community decision that is cheap and easily reversible, just do it. 
if you think that the walls in this room need to be painted, like just, and the budget is like not large and you just want to do it, like go do it. Uh, group decision-making runs the risk of being slow and overcomplicated and duocracy is this effective way to counteract those flaws to empower residents to act on like the to-dos that the community needs most. So duocracy is good. Maybe the last one I'll mention is cheer the opt-out. I think some people, especially if they've never lived in a co-living community, think that you have to do all of these activities that happen on a day-to-day -day basis or week-to-week -week basis and that you have to participate in all of the meals every night, but that should not be the case at all. Like paying members should never be excluded, but also no one should be required to attend things. People have different commitments and energy levels and it's nice to have something there, but don't guilt trip people for like opting out, cheer, cheer them for opting out. You already started or have answered a question I was about to ask what you've learned about how to govern communities or co-living spaces like that. And uh, you gave some interesting answers. I mean, it was generally my fear or expectation that when it comes to governance, there's often few people willing to step up and be leaders, yeah. right? So a lot falls on them. And then the worry is that they're not like in a space where it's, we people are more closer. They're, there's not, they don't want things to be very transactional, right? So they're not getting any money for it typically. And then when it comes to recognition, so, so I think it's, so you, you can you talk a bit more what you learned when it comes to governance, how to ensure that there's kind of consistency that, that things get done and that, 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 that the trains run on time, if you will. Yeah, good question. I don't know if I have as clear as clear of a framework to prescribe, but I'll, I'll just share what I've seen work. I, I do think you need a clear owner or like person who is taking more of the financial risk and thus has like more of like a, a sense of ownership just so that you do have some final decision maker. I, I don't think that like you can make committee decisions on every little thing. Like someone's going to have more of a vested interest and depending on which model you're using. If you're doing like a commercial subscription co-living, like Outside or uh, Wi-Fi Tribe, like these are Selena, these are companies, these places own the properties, they're going to set the rules. So in those cases, you're just like a consumer, you're going to show up and enjoy it. Same with like Common, which is like a more a less rotational co-living place, but like still exists. Those places, they'll just sort of dictate. Then in a situation where you are organizing co-living for your friends, in the Hawaii example, it was myself and one other friend who we put like $13,000 on our credit cards to get the Airbnb for the time that we were there. Not that I'm recommending this, but like we did this before anyone had paid us before we had full commits because again sometimes i think you need to just plant the flag and say this is what's happening if you have 10 people trying to like co-create an experience not you can't please everybody so we sort of declared this is what's happening and then we became by having like taken on this risk the like the organizers and the arbiters of, of conflicts so like when we showed up to this spot in 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 hawaii there was this room 
that from the photos had looked like a normal room and yet it was actually lofted, which meant that noise filtered into the room much more easily than anticipated. And uh, the person who had originally planned to work in this room was going to work, you know, normal hours while in Hawaii, but the rest of the house was working East Coast hours. So we were getting up at 3 a.m., most people, and like going to the living room and like working and taking meetings. And this person in the lofted room could hear everything and couldn't sleep. And it was a horrible situation for them. And they did not like it at all. Um, so we, we, me and my friend, had to be the ones who like took input from all groups because we, we wound up asking someone else to switch into that room who was getting up early. She wasn't thrilled with that, but like it was the most fair solution given the constraints. And like the other lesson from that is like you want to get video tours of places before you book them. But um, that was like a case of the people who are organizing it should like make those like hard, harder decisions that like, you know, other people are, are, in, are involved with. But there's plenty of other decisions that like, we didn't have to make because, hey, like you want to go on a like waterfall kayaking adventure. Like we don't need to like organize that or lead that. Someone else can do that. Um, in, you know, in a more permanent co-living home, uh, like Radish, for example, which is uh, in Oakland, it's like a 20 person permanent co-living community there. Like the, the owners, uh, Phil and his partner, Kristen, they have like final decision on like what gets built. Like they're building a new two bedroom unit, for example, that's like a big change and expensive and long term. So that's like their decision to make because, again, they have a lot of the financial risks. But then like decisions on like what to pack in the in the fridge or what community events to have on a week to week basis and a thousand other micro decisions are, are made at the community level by the people who care about the decisions the most. So people who like have invested like emotional interest or financial interest in a decision should be the ones making them. That's sort of the like foundational principle behind duocracy is the, post the person closest to the problem decides. And then the last model for cabin and, and how we have our, we have many neighborhoods. Your listeners probably have heard a more eloquent description of cabin from John in, in that episode. But the way we work is Cabin doesn't own any of the properties. We are a community curated co-living community. And each of our neighborhoods has a clear caretaker. This person is the steward of their land and of the like gathering that happens therein. So they have like the, they're sort of like the Phil and Kristen of their individual location. But Cabin as a whole has certain values and certain criteria to our neighborhoods. And so like there's, there's the on-chain governance that we do to sort of curate which communities are most aligned with like Cabin's vision of building a network city for remote workers who love nature. And through this token curated registry that we've built, the best neighborhoods, uh, best in quotations, rise to the top of this list because people say, hey, like these neighborhoods are really cool. And so then more people uh, go to those neighborhoods. Yeah. So the answer to the governance question is there's many different answers, right? I mean, you can <laughs> yeah. have like a much more productized experience like a Disney World or like mm -hmm. a completely like everyone is self-reliant and taking care of their own stuff experience like like Rock City Burning Man or something like that, right? And there's yeah. lots of space in between. 
And I think anything that's rule related, whether it's like community norms or governance decisions should be minimal and should be bottom up. Like having community members introduce them as a response to situations native to your co-living situation and then communicating these established norms to new members are, are like the most important things you can do. Aren't there some like particular regulatory challenges around co-living? Right. I remember that isn't it like illegal or very difficult for multiple people to live in kind of the same place or what's considered kind of the same unit? Sure. Every place is different. Both like individual states have different rules regarding like how you zone a, a place for a single family or multifamily. And then different countries, you know, we could have different rules too. Like uh, in Japan, it's very common to see like these pod style sleeping arrangements that are, are much less common in the US, but you're starting to see it. And I think that we need building codes that allow us to be creative in how we build and to to imagine more things like the, the radishes of the world. For the, some of these things, you might have to work with your local city council uh, sometimes in order to get things passed, which is like a very bureaucratic process and can slow down the ability for us to create more affordable housing, which co-living is typically cheaper than than typical housing because you, you create more density. I mean, I, I would definitely be in favor of less strict rules, but I also wouldn't say I'm like ultra familiar with every code out there. Uh, even here, I, I live in Venice Beach, California, and there's a there's an organization called Haven that somehow, I don't know how they've done this, but in a neighborhood where most properties are single family homes, or maybe they're like a, a four unit multifamily at, at the most, they've been able to create like a, a place where 90 people live, sometimes eight to a room and sometimes with private rooms, but they, they've created a very dense hub in a neighborhood where there's not really much development beyond these single families. And so I, I don't know how they did it. And that's their founder, Robert, how he was able to abide by zoning rules and create more housing at the same time. But I'm definitely in favor of being able to build more and to experiment more when it comes to housing. What do you see as the connection or the nexus between co-living and the network state? In terms of Balaji's book, The Network State, right? So I think all of us who've read it or in this space are not 100% sure of what it is, how it's going to look like. So there's different interpretations out there, what it is. So so what's your take on it? Yeah. John Hillis at, at Cabin has, has talked about this a lot, but if you can't keep like the kitchen sink clean in a co-living environment, you probably shouldn't be trying to start a new country. A new network state or a new like model for living with other humans is so complex and so ambitious. And I applaud that ambition, but you got to be able to like do the simple things first. So if we're to take Balaji's longer definition of a network state, which He calls it like a social network with a moral innovation, a sense of national consciousness, like all these things. There's a few parts of, he has this long paragraph, long definition that, that I think are, are worth highlighting. He talks about a moral innovation, an in-person level of civility, 
those two things are really interesting to to go deeper on like in biology's stuff he talks about like having one a one commandment so he uses this example of like fittopia a place where all parts of the the network state are designed for fitness enthusiasts to work out at any given moment and there's like pull-up bars on your way to work or, or whatever i think he's being a little bit extreme to to like get a point across what we think works better is several suggestions like at cabin everything that we try to do is either to like create or conserve or to co-live and so given those like suggestions that aren't as like specific as like fittopia it allows the different corners of our universe to better imagine an environment for them and then like the in-person level of civility how are you going to have that if you can't do basic co-living or like just dinner parties together? So we're really trying to like nail those things, nail living with each other, nail having like events that safely gather and include strangers from the internet, which is a hard challenge and a important, fragile, precious challenge. And you got to get those things down first before you could ever try to do something like achieve diplomatic recognition which i personally don't even think is really like super necessary yet what if you so you had a bunch of other like network state ish or startup city or co-living projects on your podcast which other ones besides cabin would you highlight that kind of give a bit of a sense of in which direction this industry or this trend is going yeah, I feel fortunate to have had a lot of really interesting guests on the show, many of whom have come on your show as well. I think what Kift is doing is really interesting. Kift is building um, like a community of van lifers. They have taken that several suggestions standpoint and just been like people who want to like travel with other interesting people and you know who might need good Wi-Fi and showers and skill sharing along the way. They can do that now. And Kift has these community houses that sort of help bond the the van lifers really well. I, I just and everyone I've met there is has has been a really great person and I just believe in what they're doing. I think there's a few folks just in this broader like new models of living space that are really interesting that aren't all necessarily co living, like uh Ryan uh I'm gonna botch his last name. Ryan Rusbecki, um, he's the founder and CEO of Spectra Cities. And Spectra is a VR-enabled way for placemakers to design and model virtual cities. I, I think as these trends in how we live are evolving, being able to plan for new spaces in a cheap way is going to be really important. And his technology allows you to do that with increasingly high fidelity. And I, I just, I think that's really important. I think what Plumia is doing, there is a Y Combinator company called Safety Wing that provides travel insurance and health insurance to nomads. I think that alone is you know, useful and interesting, but they have a moonshot division of their organization called Plumia, which is at its most ambitious trying to build a global mobility visa is, I think, how they would phrase that. 
like a a digital nomad visa. They're very focused on like global mobility rights of people everywhere. And I think that that's like a really interesting and, and noble mission to pursue, especially just considering how someone's passport is largely an accident of their birth. I, I think what they're doing is great. So I'd highlight Plumia, I'd highlight Spectra, Kifs, and then uh, there's there's other fun episodes that are maybe less uh, specific to this conversation. You already segued into a topic that that you wrote an interesting blog post about passports, mm -hmm. right? So passports are an accident of birth, and mm -hmm. we take them for granted. They determine so much of our lives, yet they have a relatively young history thus far. I think they're less than 100 years old. Can you talk about the history of passports? Yeah, I think the term passport gets like bastardized by like a lot of different communities and, and organizations these days. But like in their most traditional sense, passports provide a, a permission to travel. Their, their origin is diplomatic. They're, they're about 100 years old in their like current form. But like before this modern era of passports, you had these like soft conduits, like safe conduct passes that were like written pleas from in different kingdoms to say, please grant me safe passage uh, for the purpose of negotiations in and out of a kingdom. And so you had this for, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of years in different parts of the world. And then developments in roads, ships, trade led to non-diplomats also needing border crossing documentation. Colonialism also increased this need. And so there, there was no like consistent passport template. I guess after travel permissioning, the, the secondary purpose of passports became conferring status. Ben Franklin, who famously was, among many things, an ambassador to France, And when he issued some of the first U.S. passports in Paris, they were kind of treated more as letters of recommendation than they were as modes of identification. So people were searching like, for passports almost as much for the admiration of their peers than like a desire to travel. So then like, After the First World War, the League of Nations introduced this like worldwide passport standard, which is uh, largely what we use today. And this was Western powers needing a way to, to keep peace in Europe. And they needed like a way to enforce border crossing rules that was consistent. And yeah, the passports are still evolving. Like married women were listed as and wife as on their husband's passports for a while and, and gender wasn't added as a field on U.S. passports until 1977. So passports are young. The adoption isn't even that high today. In 1997, only 15% of Americans held a passport, which is crazy. 9-11 and, and just increasing globalization has driven that number to, to 46% in the U.S., but parts of the world, it's, it's still under 5%. I think Europe has the highest, it's like more like 85 or 90%, which makes sense because you're, those are smaller countries in Europe and you're, you're more likely to cross a border. We're still early. Passports are like young in their life cycle. They'll go under more, they'll undergo more changes in the next decade. And uh, there will probably be more technical innovation too, spurred by biometrics and AI. Passports 
seemed to me, if you want to have like one factor that's driving most of global inequality, it's probably passports, mm. right? Mm. So the world is divided up into borders. It's all the landmass and then passports are what confers your ability to go and find opportunity in other places in the world other than the one that you were born in and that you happen to get as your as your birthright, which I think is a bit depressing. Also, like when I travel around, it's why is so much of the the whole travel and security infrastructure is not very digitized, right? So I had to get like global entry. Otherwise, right now it's impossible to transit through the United States. I wouldn't get any flight, mm. right? Because there's so many, so much customs, so much borders, so much security. Mm-hmm. And then it took me over a year just to get appointments in person with two government agencies, one in my own in Germany. They have to give like my police record saying that I did never commit a crime. And then I had to bring that physically to another agency in the United States. That's mm-hmm. a transaction that nowadays you could do like in a second <laughs> if these organizations were digitized. And I'm one of the privileged ones, right? So, and for much of the rest of the world, there's just so much inconvenience mm-hmm. and restricting their opportunity through passports. Am I too pessimistic or too negative about passports? Or is that like a grave injustice that these documents exist in the first place? Yeah, I think it's tricky. Like, I, I think the digitization of passports is inevitable. And we see examples like uh, Singapore has the Sing Pass that is, it's much more than just a passport. It's inclusive of someone's driving records and all sorts of other ways that they interact with the government. The reality is, is that the U.S. bureaucracy is not very digital yet. And that's not just related to passports. It's related to many different agencies and will need, I, I think, probably a, a pretty concerted effort to restructure that. And it will take time. There is a real black market for passports today that is like real and thriving. Someone uh, could send even just a selfie with your passport and sending that online can get you a hundred dollars. Sending like a real passport can get you $13,000 in some cases. And there's a lot of ways to try to like fake passports. Uh, there's a state department official I, I consulted with for this piece that I wrote. And, and she told me that fraudulently obtained, but genuine passports is the most dangerous threat to us borders by criminal elements. And just between all of the different pieces of legislation we already have on passports, there's the, I think the 1921 Emergency Quota Act, the 1924 Immigration Act. There are just a lot of rules that U.S. officials need to abide by to safely ensure that that passports are handed out like in a way that's consistent with the rules we currently have. And until those rules change, or until we find a, a better way to digitize the experience, the way that we make passports is extremely secure and protected because we're trying to limit the number, which you can argue whether that's good or bad. I've seen the passport making apparatus in several embassies and consulates throughout the world, and they're 
very involved machines that very specialized people are, are trained to use. If we're going to make that transition to digital, we, we just need to do so thoughtfully. And I am confident it will happen, but unclear on what that timeline will be. Yeah, it's one of my hopes that that can be like a major innovation in the network state space, right? There's already jurisdictions like Palau, we're trying to innovate on that front. Mm -hmm. Afropolitan wants to create Afrotowns and embassies that their members basically have the power to grant like passports or something like that, or like citizenships through holding passports on NFTs or something like that. I think that's a major area. We had discussions in Montenegro where they want to change the immigration laws or restrictions in a way that they can give organizations the power to issue visas, right? So mm -hmm. they're like approved by the government, and then they issue it. So mm -hmm. this could be just way faster. And this could just unlock a lot of sort of stranded talent that's right now not able to move anywhere. Is there anything in that space that you've seen or anywhere else where where you do see innovation. Yeah, I, I think like you, global entry or, or clear are, are interesting programs because they're starting to capture some biometric data as well. There's all sorts of like experimenting in, in AI and, and biometric hacking that is happening, but the more layers of security you can create in, in that digitization, the better. And like the, the, whatever the ultimate solution is, it will probably be some intersection of biotech and AI like security systems with humans at airports and, and things like that combined with like digitized passports. Some people might bemoan the, la the loss of privacy that could come with that. Obviously, I would hope that any bio-related program uh, is, is done in a secure, compliant, thoughtful way, but like it's pretty common throughout history to see a small like loss in privacy leading to like an increase in safety. And I imagine that we'll see something like that um, pertaining to like whatever this end security state might be to, that also enables higher convenience. Yeah. In Zuzalu, in, with the, in the, within the Ethereum ecosystem, we were discussing zero knowledge proofs, mm -hmm. which could do that, right? So in a privacy preserving way could sort of verify your identity and just confirm that you are the person that you claim to be. So the technological means to achieve that already exist. But as you said before, it's really the rules by government that are preventing better technology from reaching wider adoption, which I think is something that is a key innovation that should come from the network state space that we're able to just make it easier for people to travel or to go where work and opportunity is because that's just, I think, one of the biggest injustices in the world. Jackson, any other area of your work that you want to highlight or draw listeners' attention to or ways to, to connect with you with your work? I just will maybe underscore my one of the points I made at the beginning, which is we're at a really unique moment in the history of humanity. And the way that the internet allows us to coordinate in new ways and just generally reimagine how we live and design our built environment is just starting. And our cities over the last hundred plus years have been designed around cars. And 
I don't know if they will continue to be designed around cars when we will be able to increasingly meet people online and get together in person for a duration of our choosing. And given this just sort of extreme flexibility there and the extremely high number of coordination options that are supported by a number of real world technical innovations and renewable energy and satellite internet and, and other and like modular housing. We're just going to see so many cool experiments over the next 50 years that I'm extremely excited and, and thankful to be able to see. And I'm just generally optimistic about how we can create more housing and promote more equity through these coordination mechanisms. So I write about this kind of stuff at futureofliving.substack.com and believe that Cabin is also a, a great experiment in its own right. Uh, to find all the remote workers who love nature and give them amazing places to live with community across the world and to, to travel between those places and, and still have a, a consistent experience that is also an adventure. So that's where I'll be doing things. That's at cabin.city. And appreciate you having me on the show. Jackson, this was really fantastic to have you in the podcast. We we're digging a bit deeper into co-living as a trend or as an industry. We're looking at different examples. We heard more about Kevin and how you're doing things as a community organizer. We talked about the connection with network states, new forms of governance. And we were also talking about passports as like a key area where innovation is needed that allows people just to move where they want to live or with whom they want to live and some of the regulatory challenges that comes with that. So Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Nicholas. Great to, great to be here. Thanks for coming on my show. Glad to, to uh, have done this cross episode. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.